Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of 168,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of the production and broadcasting costs of The Modern Architect. KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. From the campus of Stanford University, this is The Modern Architect radio show and podcast featuring one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate, this is Tom Dioro. Thank you, Shay. For our guest today, please welcome Clarence Mamoyak, president and CEO of ELS Architecture and Urban Design, a Berkeley-based architecture and urban design studio focused on the entire spectrum of public spaces, buildings, open spaces, and plazas. For more information, you can visit www.elsarch.com. That's www.elsarch.com. Hello, Clarence. We're excited and honored to have you on The Modern Architect today. Well, thank you, and great being here. Oh, Clarence. Clarence, I'd like to start the show off with something funny as we, 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 we spoke about. Is there anything that transpired on your way over to the campus? Uh, there's so much tr- construction going on. Well, I hope it's not too funny. I just okay. hope I don't get towed away. Oh, no. Yeah, you parking, on, parking on your campus was a trick, but we figured it out. Oh, yeah. We try to make it easier. The construction is just, again, it's, it's, it's great that there, there's going to be new facilities, but also it makes it challenging for existing, existing, sure. existing folks. What inspired you initially, if you can, if you can recall, to get into architecture, be an architect, or even the built environment? What, what are there any inst- instances or, or uh, an epiphany that happened for you to say, "Hey, I want to be an architect"? Well, I got to hang out in my dad's office a bunch. So oh. my, my father was a landscape architect, great guy, awesome. very talented, and uh, since I was probably knee high, I've been hanging out in that kind of fun, working, creative environment. Not, it's, so you were three, four, five? Do you think no, if you can, something like that? I'm really, sure. really. Would, would your father ever give you some fun tasks? Like, here's what you know. Take a look at this. What do you think of this? Just to kind of exchange with you. No, yeah, we got to do a little bit of that. Oh well, yeah. And, uh, you know, it was just again, it was just a a fun environment. I thought my dad played with marking pens all day. No way. Uh, you really did. So uh, <laughs> you know, I thought, wow, this is a great. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. And so it started there. Yeah. Now, how about how about in in school? Did you did you like make drawings? The teacher say, Clarence, what is this? And, you know. <laughs> oh, sure. I mean, whenever there was an opportunity to design something, I tended to raise my hand. So that was a lot of fun. There was sort of this mix of designing things, and then if it involved a ball and a clock, if there was anything sports. Oh, good. Uh, so you played sports as well? Uh, so I love that. Oh, good. What did you play? What type of sports? Mostly baseball. Oh, really? Yeah. Let me take a guess. 
center field? No, so I was a middle infielder. Okay. And, and actually, I still get to play today. I play in an over-50s league, so we're a bunch of old guys out there. No, tell us about uh, that. I want to hear that. That's great. <laughs> so over-50s baseball. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, how, how does it? It's actually quite prevalent. Uh, it's, it's, it's nationwide, and a bunch of guys get together. They try and find a field, and we're sort of the, the last comers to, to the table. All the high schools get to play first and, okay. uh, and all yeah. the little leagues, but then ultimately they'll they'll hand it over to some of us older folks. Oh, that's great. So you really can never retire, in essence. That's right. Never oh. can retire. Oh, never that's retire. that's terrific. Now, have you brought how does how does work work with, you know, playing baseball? Do you ever see any any parallels? Well, I don't know if it's so much about baseball itself, but certainly the love for sports is has always been a big part of sort of my architecture career in that again at ELS <laughs> we have we have four big sectors okay. that, that we work in. One is sports, recreation and aquatics. So that's a sector that I lead. And sort of being a participant seems to help me be a better designer. So I think that's where the interest is so high. Yeah. So I see your website's got terrific, you know, some of the projects. I don't think it's all of your projects, but the projects that I've seen are, are terrific. Do you reach out to them to, to say, hey, I think I can design the ball club? Is it something you, or your ball, the stadium? Or do you reach out to them? Are they a request? Or you kind of just have a clientele that knows that's what your specialty is? Well, it's certainly... It's 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 certainly keeping your ear to the ground to find okay. out where the work is, and there's a significant amount of research that goes into pursuits of that type. There's just a lot of work that goes into identifying these potential projects, and once they're identified, I always know, we always know at the office that there's going to be significant competition for that work as well. Okay. So, yeah, there, there's, there's no shortage of competition out there. I like that. <laughs> when you have the competition, but you still have that competitive edge. And you, obviously, you still got the fitness level. Well, it's a compliment, but it's true. <laughs> you still got that, you know, the ball player type build and the mentality. I'll ask you this. Do you think playing baseball or competitive sports helps in business? I think, sure. I think, I think participating in sports helps in all kinds of arenas. Okay. Business being one of those, sure. I think it, everybody, I think, wants to sort of have their best performance at certain times mm-hmm. and I think in architecture, we try to do that, too. We gear up for a big event. So, again, I think like a big game. I mean, you're gearing up for a big presentation. So there are similarities. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And you're obviously continuing. What are some of the challenges that you've experienced in working with this? Specifically, let's stay on sports for a minute. How has your experience in sports helped in your design and your your relationships with your clients as well? Well, I think a lot of it comes from, again, of course, there's sort of a light level of participation but it's kind of the the fan experience again being a lover of sports attending lots of different events and again events with from young kids age group sports all the way up through professional sports you know, if you've been around it enough, you kind of get a sense of what's what works for spectators, what doesn't. What's it like for the athlete who's out on the field? And you sort of take all of that in and sort of bring that with you to your next project. Yeah. I'm curious. Do you, do you start just from just dirt and take a look at what it could be? Or oh, sure, sure. I mean, a lot, yeah. in a lot how of do you, cases, How do you kind of get that vision in your head when there's <clears throat> nothing? 
Well, actually, here here on the Stanford campus, okay. we've done a handful of projects. That's right. We've yeah. done the Avery Aquatic Center. Gorgeous. Uh, the Toby Tennis yeah. Stadium and the Ford Center for Recreation in Burnham Pavilion. So in, in, in all of those cases, what's interesting here about Stanford is that there's a very rich context you have to work with. And that context is pretty inspiring. And so that was the springboard for those projects. And so it wasn't ground up bare dirt. But in fact, we had to fit in to a lot of areas on the campus. Which may be more challenging. I think it is. I also yeah. think it makes for a richer project. I mean, yeah. again, it's one thing to to do a freestanding building out in the middle of a bare field as opposed to fitting into a campus environment or a city environment for that yeah. matter. Yeah, if you don't mind, if we can get into your brain a, a little bit here, Clarence, how, how do you envision it when you first know that there's a, there's a project that you may be doing? And then how do, what kind of steps or processes do you go through mentally to get yourself, you know, to kind of see the outcome before it even, you even start? Is there a process mentally that you go through? Or? Oh, sure. I mean, and actually the process isn't just me, at least in, in, in at ELS, I mean, there's a, there's a big team there. In any one of the projects that we work on, I mean, there's a whole army of folks that, that are involved. And I think we take every project when we, when we initiate them, we actually look beyond the borders of the project. It's not. Really? It's it's the kind border. of it's kind of easy. I think. How to, is that? Like the borders of the project. Yeah. Well, let's say let's say we're handed a a program statement to to build a community center or a recreation okay. center or a shopping center here on point X. All of that's great, but that information is known. So we need to get a sense of what's happening beyond the project and get a much broader perspective on how this building or this project is going to impact other areas and how sort of the activity around the project, the context, how that might influence the design as well. So I think that's where we start. We want to, we want to absorb the context, the scene that we're going to be in. Oh, my goodness. Is there a project that you know that took the least amount of time and then the most amount of time? Not that there's a set time, but how do you do that? Do you kind of, is there a way that you can mentally quantify the time it will take to kind of make that vision real? You know, the... With all your play, with your your team? It's, it's, you know, if if the architect had... You know, control over the schedule. That's, <laughs> that's pretty easy. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty easy because, they, again, we're a bit in a vacuum and we can design something to a program. But it never happens that way. I mean, there, there are all kinds of forces that are contributing to and influencing a project, whether it's the economics, whether it's political, you know, whether it's physical. I mean, there are all kinds of things that are influencing any project that we're, we're tackling. And it's sort of sort of reacting to these constraints or these influences and then seeing how they counter-react. And ultimately, it all starts to fit into place and things start to fit together. But it takes time. There are, there are schedules, though, yeah. and we work pretty closely with our, our client partners in, in developing those schedules. Yeah, there are so many moving parts. You know, say, how how has architecture changed, at least for you and your in your firm, say in the last five years, say from today? You know, from today to right. the last five years, are there more political challenges? Are there more paperwork? Is there more people involved? Is there more bureaucracy? Is there mm-hmm. less? Mm-hmm. You know, what, you yeah. know. To me, the significant changes have been just 
you know, technology. I mean, okay. it seems like it changes every day. There was a time when when Revit or, or building information modeling was quite the scene. And today, it's, you know, virtual reality. Soon, all of our clients and our staff will be equipped with goggles and oh. traveling through buildings. You see that? Do you envision that? We see that, that now. We oh. see it now. I mean, it's happening now. So it's sort of the, the pace at which you can sort of quickly visualize spaces is amazing. And I continue to be blown away by that. But I've seen that progress just in the last few years. It's been quite significant. So, so there's that. And then it's interesting, social media and, and how we use that to promote design issues or how we get feedback on projects that are being considered. I mean, there's, again, the entire world now can participate in this design process. And I think it just makes our buildings richer. I think yeah. the designs will be, are, are far more informed now. It's a little more challenging, but that's, I think, the interesting part of all of this. Yeah, it's interesting that you said you think that, that the technology is adding and making it richer. Whereas, you know, I've, uh, I've talked with some folks who actually say it's actually made it more difficult, but you have a obviously a much more positive outlook in that you feel it's enriching. How, how is it enriching? Well, way back, again, let me take you back 20 years. Yeah, we did a lot of hand sketching and we did a lot of model building, physical model <clears> building. <throat> we are still doing physical model building because there's something sort of about the tactile yeah. of doing that. Thing. Yeah, I love that. What's your, your yeah. thoughts on that? Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And and again, it's, it's sort of the way it's done now. It's done with laser cutters and it's all modeled on a computer. But the result is still this tactile piece of information now, but it's in three dimensions. So I think that technology is getting married with, again, more sort of handcrafted thinking, which is great. But, you know, at the end of the day, we, we have clients who essentially come into the office and they're expecting to see a full-blown vision in a very short period of time. And What's interesting is that it can be done. Now, is it entirely thought out? Has the building been sort of crafted for months and months? And no, it hasn't. And I think that's one of the that's one of the areas that's going to challenge a lot of architects. Is you know how do you how do you go from a program statement on paper to a photorealistic rendering in a matter of a couple of weeks or a week? And how do you how do you how do you sort of reconcile all of the complexities of building science in that time. You can't. It's just really challenging. So, you know, it's almost as if you you sort of, you get to an image and now you have to somewhat reverse design and have a basis for, for that image to be built. That's well, pretty challenging. I like that. Re- speaking of reverse design, I would think it varies with each client how educated they are before you work with them. Is there a mix of clients we continually work with and new clients? Do you have a percentage or an approximate percentage? So I would say that of the ELS client group, they're all really sophisticated. In fact, in a lot of cases, we're working for architects. So organizations, whether it could be Stanford University or any one of the major universities or colleges that we're doing work with, any of our major developers, they all have architects on their staff. So they all understand this process. And they also all understand that today the imagery can go from words on on an Excel spreadsheet to an image pretty quickly because they're seeing it by everybody now. 
So it's a it's a sophisticated group. You know, it's I, I learn so much from my clients. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's pretty amazing. You learn so much for your clients, <laughs> but it sounds like in a, in, a, in a way you're an architect's architect, or you can be. If, if need be, you can be, because you're providing an insight that they may not have, but you're also gaining an insight and experience that they do have. We are, yeah. Sure. Yeah, so that, that's sure. got to say something from, obviously, you and your culture. And I want to talk a little bit about the culture at ELS. You know, you come in, you've got a beacon of light coming right into the studio. It's just you. You know, I, I was really excited to have you on the show because I knew you had that. There's a, a, there's a, a strong light light to you, Clarence, and, and, and I, I was hoping our, our listeners, I think our listeners will, will see that or hear that how is the culture at ELS that is it reflective of that Do well you, that's that's very kind of you to no, say it's, that. I'm and, being sincere if you, and, it's it's true and I'm you glad know? you're asking me that question yeah. because the culture at ELS is I think it's one of the best working environments that, that you could find in in design I'm really proud of it and I want to say it has a lot to do with four incredible partners that I have. David Fawcett, who I went to grad school with, and he sort of looks over all of our numbers. Uh-huh. And then Diana Hayton, she essentially runs our adaptive reuse and our green design area. And Gino Yoon heads up our retail mixed-use practice. And then Jeffrey Zeba, he, he looks over our performing arts area, and I do sports and rec. So it's, it's that group, I think, that, again, we're collaboratively and have sort of, we, we try to set an example, but we've also identified the next layer of leaders and they too are bringing forth the ELS culture. And I think our clients appreciate that as well. So it's a pretty open environment. And I think because of that, we got great clients. <laughs> we got some exciting work and it all seems to come together nicely. Excellent. Excellent. We'll return back to that. This is KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, 90.1 FM. Doctors Without Borders delivers emergency medical aid worldwide to people affected by armed conflict, epidemics, natural and man-made disasters, or a shortage of healthcare services. Since its founding in 1971, dedicated medical teams have treated over 100 million patients. Doctors Without Borders relies on private contributors to maintain its ability to operate independently and respond where needed at a moment's notice. To learn more, please visit doctorswithoutborders.org. That's doctorswithoutborders.org. Now back to The Modern Architect on KZSU Stanford. We're talking today with Clarence Momoyak, president and CEO of ELS Architecture and Urban Design, a Berkeley-based architecture and urban design studio. For more information, you can visit www.elsart.com. That's www.elsarch.com. Clarence, you said something that I thought was really interesting, is uh, next layer of leaders. Go into that a little bit. You know, I, I like that. So, actually, this this goes back a ways to ELS, which uh, one time stood for Elbasani, Logan, and Severin. So those were the three founders. Don Logan and I met. He was uh, my 
graduate thesis advisor at Berkeley, and he asked me if I wanted a job, and I thought, oh, this would be great. So, <laughs> so here I am now, still there 30 years later. <laughs> Along the way, Don left the firm, Barry Albasani stuck around, and at that time, we worked out a new buy-sell agreement with Barry. And Barry identified the next layer of leaders, kind of on his own, and I was in that group. Okay. So then we had a we had a plan in place. We had a transition plan in place. And so again, I mentioned Gino, David, Jeffrey, and Diana. They are all are part of the, with the exception of David, are part of the third generation of owners now. So we have in place, again, we've identified uh, a handful of folks to sort of fill in our shoes. And so it's pretty exciting. And again, it all started with Barry and sort of Barry you know, being willing to sit down as a first-generation owner uh-huh. to, to see and want to see the firm transition uh, yeah. over time. So it's pretty exciting. That is. So how do you, now that you're in the third generation, are there characteristics of a person or talents of a person that you can now see that would fit into that culture? It, I mean, you do see that. I mean, you see... Is it quantifiable or is it like an intangible still? Yeah. I know I, we have technology, but... there's. It's certainly not easy. There are... Good again, answer. It's not there, easy. There, yeah. there are a lot of folks out there who, again, I, I think are very worthy of it. And again, so it's, it's, almost, it's almost as if we probably have several folks who could fit that bill. But again, it's not everybody can sort of advance to that level. Okay. So it you know it sort of settles itself out. It's it's a challenge. Yeah. It's a challenge. Here on Stanford, the projects that you've done on Stanford, you're right. They they kept with the theme of the original building. How how do you do that? Do you kind of look at the old plans, or you look at the building, or how do you mentally? do that and then you put it on a computer because even if you put it on a computer you still have to mentally put, you, you got to start with that idea and that vision and I, I, again I, I asked earlier but I'm curious about your process and how you do it especially when you have a, an already built established and very expectant the tradition needs to be mm-hmm. adhered environment. We sort of take a look at just the physical makeup of, of the area and again the site beyond our site and try to get you just get a strong sense and understanding of, of sort of how the campus physically works, at least at Stanford. That's what we were doing. And then, you know, almost, almost at the same time, we're going through a series of meetings with, with all the stakeholder groups. Mm-hmm. And again, they're, they're deep and broad. So we're collecting all of that data, which tends to focus on the project itself. So then it's a combination of these sort of internal forces and these external forces. And both of those together start to shape a vision for, for the project. Yeah. How much percentage would you ever put, you, you, you and your, your, your firm, would you put on actual design, architect, thinking, and then the actual relation with the people? Oh. Have you ever, have you ever done that? <laughs> I try and I, it, it shifts very But I'm I, curious to your... your your you know, your it, it feels like the answer should allow for two hundred percent because it feels like <laughs> you know, it just feels like you're you're always thinking about the project. I mean, yeah. whenever we're 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 working on something, it seems like it's it's constantly there. It's always in the background, or maybe it's even more intense when you're at meetings or you're on the site. But it seems like you're always thinking about it. And at the same time, there's all of this, there's sort of the the people connection side of things. You know, really trying to understand and 
hopefully interpret correctly what your client is after or what the stakeholders need in this building. Yeah. I mean, and, and we don't get it right all the time, but we certainly try to. And, and there's course corrections along the way. But, you know, being a, being a good listener is probably the best thing we can do, you know, before we go too far in a process. Yeah. It's just buildings are just so complex. Yeah, I like that the phrase you have. You've got a lot of them here, Clint. Course correction. Explain a little bit, elaborate a little bit on that core. I well, like that the course you, course correction. You know, again, I, I did you make that up, or that's your no. own word? No, really, I've <laughs> I think never I've heard, heard that before. Well, have you? Well, I've not heard it before. I want to use it. There's some really good ones. Site beyond the site. Course correction. Next layer of leaders. Clarence. So prophetic. Uh, oh, you're so. Oh, you're too kind. No, no, no. Um, no I'm, I, I like to catch when I see the light, man. Okay, so course correction. Please. Well, I think, and again, we get to do this a lot, and I think that's just because we don't get it right the first time. I don't know many folks who do. We certainly don't. But it's, you know, there's this going through a series of discussions with clients and presenting an idea and, you know, oh, no, we didn't think about X, Y, and Z, and that's a great issue that you brought up. So we'll come back again, and that's all part of the course correction until we get to a point where... You know, everybody has has sort of bought into the idea and bought into the design. Yeah, uh, but it takes it. it there's a, an incredible amount of back and forth. Yeah, is there any any logging of this or, or, or recording of this this processes and systems that you have even within your company, so that you know the next next layer of leaders knows here's how here's how you respond in this situation. Oh sure, yeah. Okay. In fact, everything is recorded. Really? Uh, okay. I think that's a real important part of the process because you have to memorialize just about everything you do. Yeah. You said you did it every, again. I every, love it. Memorialize everything every, we do. Every action, awesome. every action has some consequence down the way. And you want to know, well, how did you lead? How did you get to this point? And, you know, the record, as long as it's good, can help you sort of can help you sort of redefine things. It could also help you sort of get a better understanding about how maybe you need to, how you need to go about correcting something if that's in fact was the issue. Yeah. Are there any projects that you're doing now that you're at liberty to share with us that were initially challenging? I think I'm sure all of them are, but you know, maybe you can express one of the challenges or a challenge of it that you're, uh, you know, in, in, in the midst of completing now, or if you're at liberty to share. You don't have to say the name of the company or, sure, sure, or just sure. a specific project. Well, this is all public record. One real exciting project is it's for the city of Santa Clara. They have a swim facility there that's actually it's it's quite well known. It's called the George Haynes International Swim Center. Multiple Olympians have come from that center and from that club. Well, the center was built back in the Kennedy administration, so as you can imagine, it's it's quite old. And so the city has has decided to raise the facility and build new. And so along with it, there's been a big opportunity to add a community recreation center as well as the International Swimming Hall of Fame, which is going to relocate from Fort Lauderdale. Really? International? The International Swimming Hall of Fame. That's awesome. So it's a fantastic project. And the challenge of this project has been to find the appropriate funding vehicle. That's been huge. Because of escalation in the Bay Area, and there's, there's lots of construction going mm-hmm. on, yeah. those delays have essentially caused the construction numbers to escalate to higher numbers. And so, you know, how the city ultimately sort of zeroes in on a financing mechanism right now will be real interesting. One of the things we're thinking about is a public-private partnership 
where private investment money might come into the project in addition to city money. And so it's a real interesting way to get these sort of larger public projects off the ground. Yeah, and you're obviously right in the middle of that whole process, aren't you? Well, we we are, and and to a large degree, in terms of sort of, you know, how can we help sort of speed up the process so that the escalation doesn't accumulate okay. at a high rate, and we can certainly come up with ideas for how to reduce the base construction costs. Okay. So we're in it for that, and at the same time, we're trying to maintain the design that has been approved. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, there are there's a whole other series of meetings and and thought processes that are going on on the financing side. And while we supplement that, I wouldn't say we're right in the middle of it, but it's again, it's a whole other group of folks who are trying to bring again a financing package to the table yeah. that will get the project off the ground. Yeah, I'm curious if if this is out of reach for the city is to have an, a corporate name of the center in addition to the city of Santa Clara. I don't know if that's an option. Right. No, they're they're looking at that. That's part of the option. There's naming rights involved. Naming rights, yeah. There's there's a whole list of of items. And yeah, it's, it's, again, quite complex. How does it look, though, when you see at least the outcome of what what your vision is for it? Oh, we're really really excited about it. I think one of the most interesting features of it is it has a feature that we call the Aqua Arena. So the Aqua Arena um, it'll be the only 25-meter by 25-yard pool surrounded by a stadium. And the reason that's significant is if you were to go to any NC2A or Olympic trial event in the U.S., you essentially go to a pool that has a 50-meter pool, and then that 50-meter pool is partitioned down to a 25-yard venue. And actually, I said Olympic trials. I I meant NC2A trials. All of the NC2A trials are done in 25-yard increments. So what that means is that the spectators can be sort of more intimate with... Yeah, I was going to say, it's almost like you're in the water. So you're right on top of things. And then the other part of the Aqua Arena is that that's where the International Swimming Hall of Fame will be housed. That's a real interesting project. We're doing that with a partner firm of ours in, in Boston, Cambridge 7. And they're a amazingly talented. They just did the museum, the San Francisco 49ers Museum. Yeah. So they're doing the museum exhibits and we're providing the structure for it. So it's it's pretty exciting. Oh my. When does it look like it might, that might, if it goes within the next two years? I would say two to three years. Two to three years. So at. really the funding is the, the challenge the right funding now. is the challenge. Because uh, you got right. the, the vision. Well, that you said that. I'm just trying to envision as you're speaking though, you know, that, that an aqua stadium, I never thought that... It, now that you've done it, even though it's be the first one, correct? Well, this would be the first one for that size. And okay, first one for that, that size. It has a 50-meter stadium pool as well. So it's a it's a big project right now. The, you know, the numbers are at around 200 million for it. So it's it'd, it'd be a significant piece. So what's interesting about that, the, the aqua, I like that word even, aqua stadium. That just sounds great. It just flows. <laughs> the aqua stadium is you have. It sounds like even though it would be one of the first for that 25 yards or mm-hmm. 20 mm-hmm. meters. It sounds like it, it. it's the first, but it actually sounds like, I wonder why they never did it that way in the first place. I don't know if you ever thought of that, but it's like, that just makes sense. Yeah, why not have a stadium where everyone's right intimate with it? Right. Well, I think 
was that your my, idea with my, it, or did they ask, hey, we want the people, like, almost getting splashed? Yeah. No, I think there was a combination of things. Again, in the U.S., we're, we're on this 25-yard course and as a standard. And, you know, until we go metric and we decide to, to, to do 50-meter lengths, you know, the 25-yard course is, is going to stick. And so everything has been kind of oriented about that. And now when a community or a city or municipality, whenever they go to build a pool, they always want to accommodate not only the 25-yard course but an international event, which is a 50-meter course. So you really typically you can't afford to build both, so you build one big one okay. and call it a day. And then you use ways to sort of shrink the pool with floating bulkheads. Yeah. <laughs> so, so in our case, in Santa Clara, this is the first time where we're able to actually build two separate pools. So we have a big 50-meter pool for international events, but then we have this smaller pool, the 25-yard course, but it, do, it it actually triples in in its use. So it's it's the home for synchro swimming, which is big there, and then also it serves as our dive tank. So there are three big events that can happen in this one pool. So that's how we were able to pull it off. Oh, that's great! Sorry, listeners, I love water and swimming, so I'm going to really get into this. <laughs> and if, if you, you specialize in that, what other other projects are, are you doing that are of, of the same sort of challenge and the same sort of? I'm sure all of them are interesting, but you know, in, in, off the top of your head, you know, one of our and we've just done this recently. We are now doing two really exciting projects for community college districts in the okay. Bay Area. We have a great client in San Mateo County Community College District, Kenyatta College, and we're doing a kinesiology wellness and aquatic center for them. So what's unique about that, at least to me anyway, is the sites of that particular college district, they're all sort of on the crest of a hill, and the views oh, that yeah. they command yeah. are Amazing. So when you have that, you really can't make any mistakes. It's it's pretty amazing. I mean the, the the topography, the views. And then we have a client, the chancellor there is he's very design oriented. He's thinking very long term. He's just a great client. He's, you know, involved in in all of the major planning decisions and he's what I and what I really enjoyed about working on that campus, and again, it sort of goes back to some of the questions you were asking me earlier, is that, yeah, we designed that for that particular site, but we stretched and we colored way outside the lines, and we connected this building to the campus proper, and I think that made it feel as if it's all a part of the larger campus. Yeah, design-oriented client. Boy, Clarence, you may—I just love your. I don't even, they're not even catchphrases. They're just really <laughs> design. How much does that help in the process when you have a client who is design-oriented? Well, and actually, I should probably define that a little bit more. I, yeah, feel free our, to. Our, our yeah. client there is, again, I think <clears throat> he's, he's, he's a real lover of architecture, and I think it's, it's just part of his DNA. You know, we have all of our clients, I want to say, are pretty design-oriented. Okay. This particular chancellor, though, again, he's done this a bunch. I mean, he's gone through multiple bond issues where they've built a lot of construction. And the campuses show. I mean, I think there's some really handsome work on a lot of the campuses. And so, you know, again, when you're working with somebody like that, they just have a real appreciation for all of your thought as an architect. And, you know, when we bump up against something, we know, too, that we can work with him and we can bring things back in line. Yeah. 
Excellent. This is The Modern Architect on KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. Cranky Kids Radio takes to the airways every Friday at 1.30 p.m. on KZSU. This unique program features elementary school students expressing their views on life. You might hear interviews with a children's book author or other invited guests, reports on various subjects, skits, and of course, music, all chosen by the kids. And really, the kids aren't that cranky. So don't miss out on this great half hour of kid-oriented radio Friday afternoons at 1.30 on KZSU 90.1 FM or streaming on the web at kzsu.stanford.edu slash live. Now back to The Modern Architect. This is The Modern Architect, KZSU Stanford. We're talking today with Clarence Momoyak, President and CEO of ELS, Architecture and Urban Design, based in Berkeley, California. For more information, please visit www.elsarch.com. That's www.elsarch.com. Clarence, some of the, what are some of the challenges? Let's, say, let's go back a couple of years, or let's say five, four or five years, working with cities and counties and uh, some of the new, new regulations. Does that put more time into it? Or once you kind of have a system of working or familiarity of working with the city, you're like, okay, I know what we're going to have to do, what we're going to do to kind of to work with each other. What, what, what kind of, are they less, more challenging mm-hmm. now? Or? So I, I would say that every project we do, and even if it's our second or third go around with a particular municipality, they're all unique. And so the issues that tend to come up are all new. They all need new solutions. But I would say one of the things that is constant, which is always an interesting part of the process, is how, is how a project has to react to the California Environmental Quality Act, CEQA. And that is probably one of the biggest and, you know, again, it it brings a lot of attention to the project. I think what I've learned over, say, the last 20, 25 years or so is that while it's a necessary process and, and an important one, and some folks might feel as if it maybe puts clamps on the project and sort of res- tries to restrict development. And I would say in some cases that may be, that may be the truth. I've started to look at CEQA as a friend, though, in the process. Oh, in, other words, nice. in other words, you know, a building or a project is going to always generate a certain mm-hmm. amount of traffic. It's going to have a certain amount of visitors. And in fact, when you're designing centers for a greater community use, you hope you're going to have lots of visitors. That's the reason we're doing the building. And so this process has been set up to sort of test that and to sort of evaluate it so that the community can get a better sense of really what's going to happen. Now, the entire community isn't going to buy into the results of this study, but we know that it's been evaluated and that it's followed the law. And so a project can or cannot move forward based on those results. So, you know, again, I tend to I tend to welcome that part of the process and explore the explore the, the, the design development, maximize it as much as you can and see how it will test out 
through that process. And that always helps give everybody, our clients in particular, sort of some solid ground to kind of react to as the design moves forward. Yeah, I notice a theme in some of the things that I, I, I've asked with for our audience's sake is some of the, obviously the challenges, but you look at a lot of challenges, I notice you treat them as friends. Again, does that kind of go back to your own, just how you're built, Clarence, or, or your own, your mind or process or your, the culture in your company to go, whatever you kind of bring our way, we're going to figure a way to make it all work really well. Well, I think it seems like there's a theme of that. That's just what I'm. Okay. Well, yeah. if maybe so, maybe right. so. I mean, I my you know every every time a client comes to us, or if we get introduced to a new client, or if we've won a project that we've pursued, there are always gigantic puzzles, and so there there there's there's always a big problem in front of you. You know, finding a solution to that. That's at least for me. That's the fun of being an architect. <laughs> I love. That's the fun of it. So you know. It's, uh, that would destroy a lot of folks. Though. No, it really would. I mean, it puts... And, and again, yeah. uh, not to... I don't want to treat this lightly. I mean, it is not me, not just me, okay. but the entire practice and my partners, I mean, they all believe this. Yeah. I mean, they're ready to take on anything. <laughs> I and, love that. That's uh, great. And it's an amazing group to work with. And yeah. Again, I, I think when some of us might be stumped, there are other folks sort of there with another solution or another idea. And I think our clients appreciate that, too. Yeah. So it goes full circle. The word you used, I liked it, is, is uh, handsome buildings. Even when you're just you're going through your day, not just with the projects that you're working on, but you know, what quantifies to you kind of a handsome project? <laughs> I've never heard of a, a – actually, oh. a handsome buildings. I've never oh. thought of a building as handsome. That's in, the not, eyes, that's in the eyes of the beholder. Yeah, it's, no, yeah. No but, but handsome is actually oh. a very good word for, for a building because it's just got a – yeah, I'm curious. What's your description or, or what, what, what qualifies or quantifies yeah, a, a, yeah. a handsome building? Well, that's a good, that's it. Well, if I, some that I know about, I, I think there are some very handsome historic buildings. I mean, right here on the campus. The sure, Pearl sure. Brown main quad. It's very handsome. Oh, yeah, you me. can. It's beautiful. Yeah. But I also like the sort of very modern Foster Medical Center building, too. I okay. That too is so that's great range then. So so, so that yeah. appeal is not for a particular type. It's a descriptive of sure. It's soul or it's essence. It's then. it's it's it is essence. I think okay. that's right. I think that's so right. it's the essence of the building <clears throat> is uh, is handsome, attractive, or and you know I what's what's a little unfortunate is that <laughs> I, I don't think a lot of our built environment you know is touched by sort of skilled design hands. I think a lot of our built environment uh, gets developed or just gets built. So when you come across something that's special, I think it just leaps out at you. At, le- at least it does to me. Yeah. And and our hope is that uh, you know buildings that we work on that they're a part of that scene that, of the good scene. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we try to do. You definitely do. That's for sure. The built environment when it's it's not. You're right. It isn't initially. It's not thought in design. A lot of buildings. This is my experience. Is there ways to correct that, or no? You just kind of have to live with that until the owner of a building, dwelling, home decides we want to, you know, work with design from the in out, not the out, like, okay, add on. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. What's your your thoughts on that? Or if, re, if you want, I could rephrase that question. Why don't you but, rephrase it? For yeah. Me? So a lot of the built environment is just there. Okay, this is my opinion. It's just there. Okay. Very very seldom do you see a building that's like, wow, that's really nice. It doesn't have to be ornate. There's just a simple simple elegance to it, and it could be as small as a a laundry mat and uh, or as large as a skyscraper. But there's a there's a sense in there that there it was designed from the s from the beginning from the core, whereas now buildings, most buildings from what I've seen are just built. And then there's some pits and pieces of design maybe put onto it, like maybe, you mm-hmm. know, maybe, you know, beveled windows or something like that, something really simple. What's your thought on, on if that's even correctable or you just have to work with organically what kind of comes your way that you can impact as a designer? Well, I think, again, if you're given a pellet of lots of existing buildings, you know, your job is to take those and give them a new look or a new sort of a facelift of sorts. Okay, a facelift, right. a new if, persona too. So if, if, that's, if, that's the, if that's the problem statement, that's fairly easy. But I think what's more difficult is when you have to do a small piece and you have challenging context on either side of you. You know, how do you, how do you sort of reconcile what's been done in the past, which isn't so great maybe, and you're going to do something new and different that you hope is wonderful. And sort of how do you, how do you sort of reconcile those two things? And I think those are real big challenges. And, yeah. and that's probably common in a lot of infill projects. Yeah, especially uh, notice from what we talked about earlier is how you think beyond Right, and that's one of the reasons we want to think beyond that because if there's a way to affect, you know, what happens down the road in some broader way, whether it's urban design guidelines or a master plan down the way, that's great because then you're you're starting to set up opportunities to even do more interesting things in the future. Yeah, so you're thinking beyond that. Has that happened ever on a project where you have completed a project and, and the building owners around have said, hey, I really like what you've done there? Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. And, I'm and, curious. How, how, what's well, actually, it happened right here on this campus. I mean, we, we started working on the, on the Ford Burnham Recreation Center, mm-hmm. and from that, we had planned other linkages to other parts of the athletics region. And so from that grew Toby Tennis and Avery Aquatic Center. So, so those things happen. And again, I think it starts with sort of a bigger idea, and then you start to plug in the pieces that help realize sort of the bigger plan. Uh, we did this for the city of Portland as well. And this was back when, when Barry was working with us, Barry Elbasani. ELS was hired to do the downtown plan for the city of Portland. And downtown plan was set. Now they were ready to implement the first piece of that downtown plan, which was Pioneer Place, a three-city block development. And we were engaged by a developer who ended up building the whole thing. So it was very exciting. But again, you know, we had a strong sense of, you know, what the direction for downtown Portland was going to be. So it was a, it was a, it was a great connection for us. The direction for downtown Portland. I've had a, is a theory actually has been proven because I believe that if you had people in mayoral or county or any, you know, government position that has an architect background or actually is an architect, my strong opinion is that whatever community they represent or organization is going to be even better from their architect's perspective. Mm. And there is, there is actually here 
and Campbell has Liz Gibbons as as an architect, that helps to build a city. What's your thought on that? It's totally, obviously, opinion of mine, but if you had, you you just said something really, really quantified that even more is the direction of Portland. You guys did that. It wasn't a district or an edict or vote on it. You guys actually came to them with a plan. So if you're in a position of mayoral, um, you're the mayor, you can actually implement that. What's your, what's your thought on that? Having architects as mayors or city officials that oversees the entire city, you know, with that, with that background. Well, I think it's, wouldn't it be a great asset to have along with everything else that you would have to deal with? I'm really, I'm really promoting your your craft, uh, Uh, Clarence, that's for sure. But uh, I believe in it because of what you're saying and what you've done. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a huge amount of political advocacy that that's tied to architecture and probably because, you know, again, buildings, when they go into cities or college campuses or, 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 or communities, they have such a huge impact, and you have to have a pretty solid understanding politically to even get something built. A favorite saying from, from, from my mentor, Barry, was, it's a miracle when something gets built. And he's so correct, because it takes years for projects to, to sort of go through their periods of, of, of review and multiple complex issues and then to finally it's interesting the timeline i would say for a project at least in the projects i've worked on 80 percent of that timeline is entitlements and approvals and design adjustment 20 percent is the actual time it takes to get it built so it's quite significant oh And, and the ability to to sort of bring a project from that excel spreadsheet you know, where it's a bunch of numbers and words to, you know, a vision and then ultimately a, a building or or a park or whatever it is, you know, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> that's awesome. That is, that's, that's terrific insight and experience. This is The Modern Architect, KZSU, 90.1 FM, Stanford. The Draper Richards Kaplan Foundation was built on the belief in the power of innovation and a conviction that funding and other support can help passionate individuals involved in select nonprofit organizations change the world. The foundation looks for nonprofits based in the U.S. that are led by experienced, dedicated social entrepreneurs with models that can scale to address national or global issues. For more information, call 650-319-7808 or visit drkfoundation.org. That's drkfoundation.org. Now back to The Modern Architect on KZSU Stanford. We're here with Clarence Momoyak, ELS Architecture in the Berkeley-based Urban Design Studio. For more information, please visit www.elsarch.com. That's www.elsarch.com. Back to the It's a Miracle Gets Built. I've got a quote that I've said a number of times, and, and, and I... I think it's uh, it's relevant to that. Is it's uh, by his name is Marcel Proust, and he says the equivalent of the true voyage of discovery is seen with new eyes. What's your thought on that? Oh, that's a great quote. You know, it reminds me. It reminds me of a project that we did for the city of Oakland. It's the East Oakland Sports Center, and so it's over by the Oakland Coliseum. The project took ten years to actually bring to, an, to a point where we could put a shovel in the ground. And then it took 18 months to build. And along the way, and bless his heart, Councilmember Larry Reed kept carrying the torch for this, this project through 
all kinds of changes in programming and funding, finally got it built. But he said to me, he goes, wow, he goes, now I know what this is like. I mean, when you when you actually get it built, it's pretty amazing. And I go, it is, isn't it? Because I'm sure he had his doubts along the way. And and, and the reason, the, the spark for this project, it's a great story. There was a woman who had two grandchildren and one had hopped a fence at Castlemont High School and fell into the pool and drowned. And she made it her passion to deliver a swimming pool to the East Oakland area so kids could learn how to swim because they had no pool. And that's how this project happened. And Larry Reed and this woman, Jackie Castain, you know, teamed together. And again, over 10 years, gathered the pennies, the bond measures and everything and built a $20 million beautiful facility. But this place, they have to turn down kids because the lines go forever to get into it on a, on a, on a, on a hot day. So it's a, it's a wonderful project. It has, it's, it's done a lot of great stuff for the community. And it's been something that our office has been really proud of. Yeah, and, uh, I'll see. And, and again, to work with Councilmember Larry Reed and, and Jackie Castane, I think, was a real treat for us. Awesome. Are there, is there anything that we, you know, there's, there's so much, there are a lot of questions, unfortunately, are, are, we're not going to have enough time. Clarence, anything that you would like to share with our audience, our listeners, about, you know, you, your company, architecture, anything that we may, may not have been, you know, covered that you think is imp- really important? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> really? What, what, well, what this has been a lot of fun. Oh, I mean, thank you. Uh, you thank kidding? you for the invite. And, oh, we're honored. And, and the chance to have a little bit of dialogue about architecture. ELS is, is a great place. It's been an honor being there for, you know, 30-plus years. And I'd have to say, again, it's, you know, it's certainly not about me. I mean, I've got some great partners and an incredibly talented group of designers and architects and you know we've got great work and i think it's we got great work and great clients because of all of them it's fun working with them excellent clarence it's been a, it's been great having you and an honor really oh thank you really yeah. it's it's a joy as i saw when you came in i'm not kidding you folks he comes in and he's got a light to him it's awesome You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dioro. Our guest today has been Clarence Momoyak, president and CEO of ELS Architecture and Urban Design, a Berkeley-based architecture and urban design studio focused on the entire spectrum of public spaces, buildings, open spaces, and plazas. For more information, you can visit elsarch.com. That's E-L-S-A-R-C-H.com. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Palo Alto, California, and is a production of KZSU Radio. The recording engineer and production manager is Akshay Juggi. The assistant engineer is McGregor Joyner, and we're all assisted by Bryce Carter. The executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Dioro. Modern Architect airs at 10 a.m. on Monday mornings, so tune in again next week for another edition of The Modern Architect. Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with over 350 building product manufacturers, large and small. Modeler.com works with architects from 80% of the top 100 architecture and design firms to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate 
for their building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for their generous underwriting of their production and the broadcasting costs of The Modern Architect.